That's what happens in the summertime. Year in and year out. People come and they go. That's why we keep these series short in the summer. This is the next to the last one. So it's kind of like a mini series. And then we'll gear back up in the fall. And um, those will be like the regular, back on the regular schedule. So, But for now, um, is there, does everybody have an outline for tonight? Everybody have their own outline? Let me get mine. Yeah, one's from last week. And... Um, is hell eternal is this week's. So, here we go. All right. Let me open with prayer and we'll get right into it. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for um, everybody who's able to show up tonight. And we just pray, Lord, that we are being equipped as your saints. We're living in a day where there's a lot of pressure on on your church, on your people, Lord God, to set aside, <clears throat> water down, or compromise your word. And we are called to stand firm and to uh, hold on and speak the truth. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would give us the wisdom, uh, the boldness, the courage to do just that. So help us with our study tonight. I pray that you are honored and glorified and we are edified. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, this is the last two um, ser- nights or studies and we are going to uh, for the last two take a look at two big objections to this whole doctrine of hell so you know this whole time we've been laying the groundwork early on talked about the doctrine of God especially um, and then looked at um, Jesus. last week we looked at what Jesus had to say about hell and that was a real extensive study a real deep study into the nature uh, of hell as put forth in the scripture and it's a hard picture it really is it's just it's hard to to as Christians we we, we accept it obviously and uh, we praise God in that but on some level emotionally it's it's a tough doctrine you think about people in our own lives and wow so it, it gets tough and in that vein there are those and there are many who are well-meaning and they make some they, they take biblical arguments and scriptures, but I think they want to take the edge off. And I could see why. I could see why. I mean, this would be something that, you know, I'd, I'd be inclined to do, I think, you know, if you could tell people that there's some end to it, especially. Um, but that's not what scripture teaches. That's our conviction for sure. And we have to stand firm on that because a lot of people are going to come to you, I think, and challenge challenge us as, as Christians, um, professing Christians. They may even be converted, um, but try to get us to, to take away from the full teaching on some of these harder doctrines. And that's where we have to stand firm for the Lord's sake. So that's why I want to do this tonight because... One way, some, sometime, some point, you get into conversation, this kind of idea is going to come up. So it's nice to know like, how you could respond to that, especially when they bring scriptures forth. So tonight we're going to do, is hell eternal? And that's another, uh, the idea behind that is annihilationism. Sometimes it's called conditionalism. You know, those conditions on on, uh, on the nature of hell and so forth. But... Um, what we have to do and keep in mind is that we, we have to take the full orbed picture of, from Scripture regarding hell. It needs to be taken as a whole, and that's the big deal. Always remember that. Every doctrine, every teaching, what does the Scripture say about it? Not just this particular passage or not this section or not just this word. That's where you can really get off track. So we want to make sure that everything's grounded in the Scripture with all the evidence coming from Scripture, so not just that one portion or one part. And that's kind of what the annihilationists do. They just take a little part, um, and they try to say that, you know, that there is an end. And they, they use different words a little bit out of co- out of context or not, not directly. So that's kind of where um, they're at with this. But we want to be comprehensively biblical. So what is annihilationism? Have you guys, has anybody ever heard of that before besides this class? So that's good. So, so if somebody came up to you and said, this is what I think about how it might be hard for you to answer because they could sound pretty convincing at times. And there are, you know, there, there's sympathetic arguments too, very sympathetic. Well, 
Here's what annihilation is. Annihilation is. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's the belief that the unrepentant sinner will face the wrath of God. So see, they're going to say, yes, they're going to go to hell, physical hell, and they're going to face God's wrath and God's judgment, and they're going to be you know, in that place that the Bible describes. Um, and, and so we're with them to this point. But here's where they change it. and say they'll be in hell for a limited time or time consistent with the nature and depth of their sin. But eventually, and here's the big thing, eventually, eventually they will be extinguished or annihilated to the point of non-existence. So there's no uh, physical conscious punishment that's eternal in hell. It's for a long time or for some time, but then poof, you're gone. Kind of, I guess, like before you were born. Do you remember anything before you were born? I don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Out of existence. So there's nothing there. And, and you can live with that. That's something that, you know, hey, that's, it's not that they're not going to hell at all. They're going to be there. They're going to be punished. But then um, they're going to be poof out of existence uh, at some point. So God's wrath is not eternal in duration. So it's about the eternality. It's not about God's wrath. It's about the eternality. It's limited. And it's growing in popularity among many evangelicals. And you can see that in the day and age we're living in today. Everybody's wishy-washy. and everybody wants to, you know, It's hard to, to stick to what the Bible actually teaches. And, and it just becomes easier in some ways to um, compromise in that part. But the, the compromise, they're, they're very much, um, they really believe this idea and they try to prove it from scripture like anything else and say, you know, this it makes sense on some different levels. And so some of the objections, we'll just look at two big objections to eternal punishment and then try to answer them. That's what we'll do for tonight. I don't think it'll take too long. It may or may not depend. Uh, but the objection to eternal punishment, one is on the emotional level. And again, what day and age are we living in today? Emotional feelings, you know, this this idea of what we think, how it ought to be. So there's a lot of emotion involved. You know, God is love. How many how many times do you hear people say God? People that don't believe in God at all, or don't you know, kind of have a belief but not trusting in Him. Well, God is love. God is a God of love. So what? He accepts everything about me because I can do whatever I want, and He still loves me because He's a God of love. Um, so that's that's a big deal. How many of you have heard of John Stott? That's a name that's familiar from the past. He's big in evangelicalism in the late 60s, especially, and, and into the 70s. Uh, what's his main book that he wrote? Oh, boy. What's that? The Cross, the Cross of Christ. Yeah, it was evangelical. Um, although him and Martin Lloyd-Jones really came to loggerheads and, you know, kind of Billy Graham and... John Stott against Martin Lloyd-Jones and others because Lloyd-Jones thought that they were compromising the faith, which ended up being. But they were very much accepted in this in the realm of evangelicalism. But John Stott said the idea of eternity in hell was simply intolerable. And he just because he thought about it and said, you know, it's, he said it's nearly impossible to think about it for very long without becoming hardened or cracking up altogether. So if you think about the implications of hell and people who are in hell and what that, you know, even from biblical picture and description, it's hard. So they say it's a moral revulsion. The thought of eternal punishment is profoundly disturbing. Eternal, um, they, a lot of folks on, on, this, on that spectrum call, it, call hell an eternal torture chamber. Um, but their view of God's love is incompatible with the eternal punishment in hell. So they don't argue against God's wrath, which is good. Poured out for a time. Believe his love and righteousness, his righteous wrath, does not go on beyond what is necessary or appropriate. So what's that mean? So it's very emotional, and it is very emotional. When you like to think, well, the people that we've known that haven't trusted in Christ, that someday they would just be, you know, out of existence and released from that. So it has a strong, strong emotional appeal. And it kind of goes pretty good because they don't deny punishment, but there's a 
time when that punishment will come to an end. It'll be annihilated. I'd, I'd like to get on board with that. I wouldn't like to, but you know what I mean? I, I can't. As a Christian, it sounds good, but it's not. It sounds good, but it doesn't do justice to the holiness, the righteousness of God. Yes, and the justice of God. You're right. And that's what we want to keep in mind and show people that too, because this is a, a strong argument, and it's gaining a lot of popularity within evangelicalism. Um, the second objection, and this one we're really going to delve into a little bit deeper, is the justice objections. The justice. So the idea is this. Look, man, if we only live 70, 80, 100 years, whatever, um, we have a finite number of sins that we could sin while we're on this earth, no matter how many that is, in thought, word, and deed. You know, you could add them up, whatever. Um but still, there's going to be like a number from the time we were born to the time we die. Um, so how could God mandate an infinite punishment? Like the punishment doesn't fit the crime kind of thing. You know, like if I've only sinned this much, how how can I spend a whole eternity in that punishment? And that's a, again, that's an argument that, that's being made. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Um in that case, according to the annihilationists, eternal punishment would not be true justice, but it would be divine cruelty. That's just cruel and unusual kind of punishment going too far. Um, carried out by the very one who's supposed to dispense perfect justice. So that's one of the arguments, right? Say, hey, you know, we sin this many sins. How could we be in hell for all eternity? So they see eternal punishment as then an endless torture chamber since this goes against their understanding of God's character of love. So how do we kind of, that's like a, a big objection. That's one kind of think about tonight and, and just kind of how would we navigate that? How would we try to answer that? Um, and the first thing on your outline, answer to the, to the objections, is that um, think, we think about justice from our own fallen and finite perspective. We have to remember who we are. We are creatures. We don't understand. We have a sense of fairness. We have a sense of justice. But ours doesn't match like the, God's infinite sense of, of justice. And he really knows exactly what people deserve. He's ordained that for, for a specific reason. So, number one, you tell people, look, our knowledge is limited when it comes to this. So is our understanding. We think we know it all. We lack the ability to know the true depth of sin. We could teach about it. We could talk about total depravity, the nature of our sin. But we still don't know truly how deep sin is and what effect that has. So we need to be very careful when we talk about what we think is fair in terms of just just punishment on that. So um, that's one thing, that the idea that our knowledge is limited in that way. Uh, so is our understanding. Uh, secondly, our fallen sense of justice is subject to change, isn't it? I mean, we kind of move the bar around. Like God has the, the God has a standard. It's it's eternal. It's ultimate. It never changes. So even with us, we need to be careful because what seemed very fair and just a hundred years ago now seems cruel and unusual. So a hundred years ago, justice, you know, there there was the death penalty that was more in line with the scripture teaching in terms of first-degree murder and so on and so forth that Western countries held to that maybe more than 100 years ago now. 100 years ago wasn't that long ago now. Thinking about it. But, you know, there was a time when when that death penalty was, that was, they were sentenced to a death penalty and quickly they were put to death. In the, in the West, they were hanged, you know, those kinds of things. It was a quick punishment. Well, then eventually, just think about that, that the justice and that, and that punishment for the justice kind of changed a little bit. Well, they still have the death penalty, but now most people that get the death penalty today, how long do they, when do, when are they actually put to death? <laughs> when they die, yeah, 30 or 40 years after that, you know, so, so that sense of justice, you know, is it really right to put somebody to death? And, you know, for this heinous crime that they committed, maybe, you know, no, we, you know, we, we've changed. Um, a lot of those sentences get commuted to life sentences, that kind of thing. Parole, you know, you're out on parole. How many of you guys think it was fair that the Manson girl got out? I think, was she the one that converted to Christianity? 
she was paroled. I don't know if you guys even know that. One of the Manson killers got paroled, and that's just like the family are just crying out. That's you know that's where's the justice in that? But see, our 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 all this to say is you know what's even considered criminal? Like you you could think we have our sense of justice moves and changes. It's not always in accord with God's sense of justice and that punishment that's due in that regard. So we, we have to be really careful about that. So I would tell people this. Like you, our knowledge is limited. Our sense of justice is subject to change depending on cultural conditions oftentimes. Um, we can't force God into our definitions or our, or our ideas of justice. He alone is the only has, – has only one standard of justice, which he will never violate. Um, and based on our fallenness, we need to view justice really from his perspective. Um, and then you can start asking the question, so what is the right amount of punishment for somebody, you know, for a lifetime of sins? <laughs> for sins against, what's the right amount of punishment of our sins against an infinite holy God? And that's another thing you have to start asking. It's not just that we sin, but it's who we also sin against. Remember the car illustration? And we talked about the junkyard. If you go to a junkyard and you scratch a car, no big deal because it's just a junky car. You know, if you go to somebody's driveway, you know, you might get, but if you go to the most expensive, most exclusive, one of a kind, you know, infinitely valuable, almost infinitely valuable car, and you put a scratch in that, well, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be sentenced to the fullest extent of the law, that kind of thing. You're not, not just going to let you go. So it also matters who we are sinning against. And um, we can't, on our own, make this determination, you know, what is just for a lifetime of sin against God. So the idea is God is, is eternal and he's infinite. As a result, sin against him is worthy of eternal punishment. Here's the deal, and this is my understanding of this. It's not a matter of length of time. Okay, here's how much time. It's almost like purgatory. You have to stay in purgatory a certain amount of time until you have all your sins paid for. But it is the character of God against whom we sin. So it's not just the the nature of sin. The nature of sin itself, because it's against God, is worthy of that eternal punishment. Because God is high and exalted, holy, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and perfectly just. Does that make sense? So it's not just because we want to put a checkbook on the numbers. Think about who we're sinning against and the character of God, and that makes it a little more easier, palatable to to understand that. So. Um, we getting all this? Is this helpful to you guys? Because you're going to respond in this kind of way, in this way. And, you know, they'll shoot other objections back to you, but this is what you want to say. If somebody comes and says something like, you know, hell can't be eternal because we have infinite or finite number of sins. Wait a minute, you know. Think about the, these things. And then finally, as Christians, we know that he is righteous and we know that he's perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly holy. He will never commit a sin in his own being and actions, he cannot carry an unjust judgment. So there's no unjust punishment will take place in hell. Nobody's going to get more than they deserve because of the nature and character of God. That's what that's based in, his holiness and righteousness. So that's those are the things you want to think about if you're ever confronted with this. You're being prepared. Any questions or comments so far on this? Does this all make sense? Here we have no biblical backing or because you know how like the uh, universalists love to pick a little section off the Bible. Oh yeah, next week we universalists have a hundred passages. But, but they, they really, they really don't. Just they're appealing. They're appealing to yeah. emotion. Right. Now they 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 they'll try and we'll look at some some of the passages they do use, but this is hugely emotional but that's what makes it so successful because we live in an emotional age we want to believe something like this you know if you're really contemplating hell you really want to you you know you you can make provision for this because there's that little mix hey you're still getting punished but just you know one day that's going to be all over but you're right kev it's it's a big emotional appeal these kinds of ideas you know does that seem just to me is that right to me 
without really knowing the justice of God. Gemma. So like the Christians who believe this. Huh? The Christians who believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's a little bit of both because like when I was reading about John Stott and he, he was considered an evangelical and I, I believe he's, he was truly converted. Tony, what do you think about Stott? Like that too, you know, he really had... It's like the same thing with like Billy Graham. You know, I want to say he's not in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. It's some of the things they talk. At least it's not our job. It's not our job to decide, but but when you have those people like that, Jim, they they it when they talk about like John Stott was talking about thinking about hell and everybody that he knows and everybody that he has loved and his family members that didn't receive Jesus Christ to think of them being there in that state of eternal punishment and torment and everything the Bible teaches about it doesn't seem that a good loving God could do that especially if they you know you could number a person's sins it might be in the zillions but you know technically you could number them it's not an infinite number of sins but god is infinite and eternity is for all time so they try to reason it's great comfort for them would that be comfortable for you if you knew like you know what that person never believed in christ but i know one day they'll just be out of it they won't be in hell I heard a teaching years ago because I dealt with that with a guy that said, oh, I think, you know, sinners will be annihilated. And the teaching I heard was, he said, in Genesis, when man fell, what was he trying to do? He was trying to get away from God. He was trying to be God himself. Yeah. All right. And so all throughout history, man has said, I can do this on my own. I'm God. I don't need you. And that, and man has been trying to get away from God. If they're annihilated, they succeeded. They got away from that's God. That's good. I never. That's really good. That's a good one because that's right. You know, like, and that's and that's after that rejection of God, enemies of God, hatred, hating God in that way, not obeying Him, rebelling against Him, so that one day that that they would technically be away from God because they would be annihilated. But and we talked about this last week. You know. Are you absent from the presence of God in hell? I mean, you're separated from his from his benefits. Like right now, we said last week, we still have benefits in common grace and the air that we breathe, all those things. But in hell, you lose those. But God is over hell. Like we said last week, he doesn't give you to the devil and the devil you know, torturing you. He is judge over hell. And the devil is also being tormented. So... That's good. That's really good. And that's something else you might want to write down. That kind of, you know, that's that's a good good insight. So that's that. And then the second one is um, the justice of eternal punishment in light of our natures. This is how, how we want to answer as well. And I think this is a real cogent argument. It's logical. It has scripture. But it, it it's, some of it's more implied, but it, it's implied, it flows from, what scripture actually teaches. So, in other words, um, first of all, we all possess fallen natures. We are all sinners. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you know, uh, we're born in sin. Um, and it's one of my memory verses that I just forgot. <laughs> uh, oh, Joey. I'm getting old. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the power of the prince of the air, who's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's Ephesians 2, uh, 1 to 3. So we're born like that. We're born fallen, enemies of God, hiding. Go back to Genesis, obviously. Now, unless he changes our nature, unless we're born again, we will always sin against him by breaking his law. Again, unless he changes us, right? Unless we're born again and our sins are forgiven. The only way to escape that sinful place is through regeneration, being born again. Then we have the ability not to sin against God. Like right now, I mean, 
able to sin, able not to sin. We know what sin is. We're, we're in that battle. I mean, it's, it's none of us, we still struggle with sin. And when we do sin, we bring it to the Lord. So when we're raised in the resurrection and our bodies are glorified, are we going to be able to sin at that point? No. But as Christians, can we still sin? <laughs> That there are a lot of perfect. There, are some of the Methodist Wesleyans they say, you know, you can reach that state of perfection in some areas, at least with known sin type of thing. Um, and there are some that would say that. And I was like, you know, technically we were able to sin and able not to sin. When we're fallen, we're able to sin and not able to obey God perfectly. So we're, we're that we have a sin nature. Now with a new nature, we have the ability to say no to sin, to see sin for what it is, to repent of sin. You know, we're, we're more conscious of when we're sinning, you know, and, and we see it for what it is, even though we still try to rationalize. So, yes, but there'll be a time that we will not sin anymore. We will be unable to sin. This is pasak pakari, pasa non pakari. So, when, we're, when, when we will not be able to sin, when will that happen? Or resurrection, glorified, that's it, and we're with the Lord. So as we apply that same logic, right, to to those um, wicked in hell, and this is, a, this is a strong inference as you think about being resurrected and the... The, the I, I would say it's a necessary consequence. It's not just a leap in the dark. It's not just something where you just kind of... If that's your look, if, if if we are unable to sin, and we'll be conscious, and we'll be with the Lord in that harmony, well, then the wicked, who also receive resurrection bodies at the judgment, they won't be glorified, but they're going to remain in their fallen natures. So all they can do, they're still pasa, pakari. They they. They can't not stop sinning. Do you understand? So there's going to be that consciousness. So in, in uh, John 5, 28, 29, just to show you that there's the resurrection of the good and the evil. Um, and we're, we're, there's a resurrection for us to life and to glory. But John 5, uh, 28 and 29, Jesus says this. And we're going to look at a few more passages. 5, 28, 29. And he's talking about his own authority in this whole pericope, this whole section. And then he says this, beginning verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And that's that's regeneration. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they'll come out he's talking about the resurrection there those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment so there is and i want to show you there is the resurrection there's no annihilationism there's equal resurrection of the uh, good of the converted and the non-converted. So they're still going to be in that nature where all they could do is sin against God. So as a result, all the thoughts, actions, and hell, they will, and this is this is something you could tell your friends, it kind of challenges, they will be forever sinning against him in the hardness of their hearts. They will never desire to repent or actually repent. If they're in hell, they will be forever dead in their trespasses and sins. So do you see that? So you can say, well, an infinite number of sins. This is a contention that even in hell, you're going to continue to sin for eternity, deserving that eternal punishment. Does that make sense? So that they, they will forever gnash their teeth against God. So that we talked about this last week. The gnashing of teeth is not just pain, but it's anger. Like when you spanked your little kid, yeah, it was hurting them, 
But the rebellious ones would just get so mad at you, too, you know, and they'd still get angry with you, right? And gnash their teeth at you guys. Give me some more, right? <laughs> you know, that didn't hurt. Okay. You know, it's that kind of thing, right? So they're gnashing their teeth. Um, and will, there'll never be a moment when they will obey God or even desire to obey God. So there's no indication that when somebody dies, there's a change in their nature, that they're going to love God, that they're going to really see how wrong and sinful they were if they only had another chance. And that's another thing we like to think. People say that once they're in hell, they're going to know. In a way, yes, they're going to know that they've sinned against God. They're going to bow the knee. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, like last week we said, they're going to, they're going to call him Lord, but that's because they're conquered before him as a conquered foe in that way, not as one who has been brought to him. Like, Who's saved by him? When when that when the prince comes back, you bow down to him because he's your prince, he's your king, he saved you. But the enemies are going to bow down and out of that force because they know he's Lord, but they're still not going to love him as Lord. Um, we talked about that last week. We'll probably talk about that next week as well. But um, so so there's no indication that there's a change of nature for those who are in hell, but they'll continue in sin and eternal rebellion. Does that make sense? That's something you might, you know, bring, push back with if somebody says, well, God's not fair because there's an infinite number or finite number of sins, infinite punishment. Well, really? Um, Remember the rich man in, in, in portraying what would be hell, that place, that chasm between... Um, was he repentant in any way? We talked about this. He wasn't. He just wanted that relief. He still wanted some. Go warn my brothers about this place. But it, there was no sense of repentance um, and remorse and, and you know calling out to God from there in, in that way. So, and, and one human example in this way. Again, it's not going to be perfect because they always fall short. And I don't want to make try to make all these analogies line up perfectly. But in some ways, um, a lot of prisoners, a lot of criminals, when they go to jail, um, do they like jail? Well, don't answer that, because <laughs> some do. <laughs> I like prison. Today they do, because, you know, you get three square meals a day, TV, you get to work out. You know, I was watching this one show, the guys, you know, that, remember that scared straight they used to do? In this one show, they were trying to scare this kid straight, but then eventually the criminal's like, it's not that bad. <laughs> you know, I get three squares of meal, three square meals a day, watch television, go to the gym, I get to read, nobody bothers me, you know. So... I'm thinking, think about prison when prison was truly prison, right? Still it is, even now. You're still incarcerated in that way. But but a lot of prisoners, thieves, murderers, sex offenders, being in prison, does that change their nature? Does that change? No. If they were out of there, they'd do the same thing, most. I mean, most of, again, this isn't a perfect analogy, but for the most part, the recidivism, that level is sky high you know if you're a thief you're not necessarily going to be you know you're in jail you don't like being there if you could get out you would if you knew you could leave and not get caught of course you'd get out and you're still mad and you're still claiming your rights even if you know that you were busted you know i was wronged i was framed you know all those excuses why am i in here blah 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 complaining about that and then once they get out oftentimes more often than not they do um, continue to commit those crimes. So they're still inclined to the same kind of thing. And that's the idea here. They're still inclined to uh, shake their fist at God in hell. And so that's that. For me, this was one of the arguments that really, really helped me get more peace. Not that I didn't have peace. I was never like, I never had a crisis over this. But, you know, kind of. It's a really strong answer to say, you know what, they're in hell, they're not begging for mercy, you know, maybe for pain or whatever, but not to truly love God. Does that make sense? And there's no indication in Scripture that that's the case at all. Um, and that like they'll, they'll, they'll gnash their teeth, never want to obey God. So let's look at some passages just related to this idea of um, heaven and hell, the eternality of it, because that's another big deal. So Matthew chapter 25. Um, you guys want to turn with me there. Matthew chapter 25. Mm-hmm. 
this is the, it's called the final judgment or the sheep and the goats. And it's just another way when we talk about the sheep and the goats, it's not about those who worked hard and did this. It's about the idea of, of those, those Christian characteristics. If you're a Christian, this is, the, this is what we do. It's, it's not like especially helping other believers in need when they're hungry, thirsty. We have that compassion. It kind of shows that we're truly believing in him. Um, unbelievers aren't going to come along and help the beloved of Christ necessarily in that way. But it's not even about that. I think this is a big picture. Another way of saying that they're saved and these are, this is the ethos of Christianity. Um, it's not just like, oh, I did this and I did that. So people misconstrue that. I just want to give that little, um, let you know that before we get into this. But I do, I'll just start in uh, verse 41. Um, then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit with me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, stranger, naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So there's that, that righteous, that contrast, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal punishment in that way. And they're punished for that reason. So um, um, Revelation, let's go, let's go to Revelation 20. If you have any questions along the way or any comments, if you want to add on to anything, just you know, feel free. So Revelation 20, and it's a good thing we're not dispensationalists in here. It would be either the different judgments. But really, I believe this is when that judgment comes. There's, and there's a little tie in here to what we just read as well about the judgment at that last day. Uh, so this is the great white throne judgment. Um, but I think it's parallel to the sheep and goats, that final judgment. And he says this beginning in, um, I guess, begin in verse 7. I'll go from there. And when the thousand years was ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came from heaven and consumed them. Now look at verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So remember that. And then, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no there was no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So if you think back to what we just read, there's kind of that when I was naked, you didn't. When I was hungry, you didn't. Just kind of that whole Christian ethos thing. It's about faith and living faithfully, truly converted in Christ. The sea gave up its dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's those that, that punishment and that... Um, you know, the, the contrast between the righteous and, and the wicked in that way. And again, think about eternality as, as punishment. It's really hard to, to not say it's eternal. Now, they try to do this, and we'll see that in a minute. Uh, but I do want you to turn to one more passage. Go back to First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, Paul's writing about the, the judgment that's coming at the, at the coming of Christ. And there, were, there was concern about that. Paul says, Paul says in verse 5, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may 
be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which of you are all, for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. So this is kind of the ultimate of what we read in Matthew. It's God who's going to heal the afflictions of the of, of his righteous ones who are afflicted. He feeds us. He takes care of us. He clothes us. He covers us, ultimately. Uh, to grant you relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay, so do you see this idea? There's that real distinction and um, again, we'll come back to this passage in a moment because some objections from Annihilus come up here. So do you, do you guys see that, this, this idea um, about, about this, where there is that sense of eternal punishment, eternal consciousness, and put together with everything else we said that no remorse, no still gnashing your teeth and shaking your fist at God throughout eternity. Because like you want to feel sorry for the people in hell. And you got to be real careful. Again, some of those... This isn't a great analogy at all, and it's just coming to my mind now, but some of those prisoners where you feel real sorry for are, you know, once they get the opportunity, they're going to do what they did before in some ways, and maybe to you. You know what I mean? You know, oh, I just feel sorry for those guys. They've had a bad life. Poor prisoners. you got to be really careful about that. God is not unjust. He's not going to punish unjustly. People get what they've earned and deserve in that way. So um, that's that's what we have to stay focused on because it gets very emotional. It gets very tempting to, to go down this road. Now, one more thing, and, and then we'll be done. Um, the, the language objection. And this is this is another thing. Annihilus will, will focus on words such as destruction. We've read that. We've read destruction. We've read eternal. Um, they'll, they'll say destruction, well, that means non-existence. You know, we talked a little bit about this last week. And we saw that that's really not the case. It doesn't mean complete annihilation. Like, you know, we were just driving past a building the other day, and my wife said, man, that's, that's destroyed. That building was destroyed by fire or something like that. So it was destroyed. Yeah, and that's that's the same word here. When we talk about eternal destruction, they say, well, they're going to be destroyed, annihilated, um, out of existence. But that's not the case. And the first thing, again, that Second Thessalonians passage, you're probably still there. Um, notice it says this: they will suffer, verse nine, the punishment of eternal destruction. So how do you suffer the punishment of eternal destruction? You know, being away from His presence, away from His blessings. That doesn't indicate annihilation. It, it's suffering eternal, eternal. until you're until you're destroyed, <laughs> yeah, like until you're annihilated. So you're suffering, suffering eternally until you're. How can you suffer eternal destruction if you're annihilated? The idea behind that is you're just going to be wrecked. King James is everlasting. Everlasting, you know, and that's that's a that's a good way to use that word because. What they will say um, when we get to the eternal part, that doesn't always mean forever and ever. But, but right now, that idea of destruction, destroy, it doesn't always mean at all annihilated, annihilation, non-existence type of thing. It means being wrecked, being ruined. I'm just destroyed. I'm done. You know, you see somebody just beaten badly. They're destroyed. They destroyed that person. They're still cognizant. They're still alive. They're still conscious. And I think that's the idea. And I think this Second Thessalonians really brings that out, like to suffer eternally until you're destructed, until you're annihilated. Once you're annihilated, once you're annihilated what happens to eternity? And there's no eternity anymore, right? You can't live in eternity if it's non-existence. I know it's getting a little philosophical, metaphysical, but you know it just it doesn't make sense. So that's you can come back with that. Um, also, in, in um, Matthew two, you don't have to turn there. Um, 
they, the king wanted to, what did he want to do to the baby Jesus? Do you remember? He sent people out to not just kill him, but let me see Matthew 2. I'll turn there. I don't know. I think it's still, I'm pretty sure. But Matthew 2, 13, I think. Let's see. Let's write this down. Matthew 3. That's okay. So, Herod summoned the wise men, verse 7, secretly to ascertain where and what time the star appeared. He sent him to Bethlehem saying, go search for him diligently. You know, I want to worship this child. After listening to the king, they went and did this. They they saw where the star was going into the house. Uh, verse 11, they worshipped him with his treasures. Um, wait, I, I, I skipped the verse. 2.13. Okay. Yeah, then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed and went home another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child in order to destroy him. To destroy. So they weren't going to, he wasn't going to be annihilated into non-existence. So even if you're, even if like you're annihilated by like the bomb and you're vaporized, <laughs> your, your soul still lives, like you're still there, you know, um, this just meant to kill. They were trying to find Jesus in order to destroy him. That meant to kill him. So it doesn't demand destruction resulting in annihilation. Look at Mark 8, Luke 8, 24 as well. Um, in Luke chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, that destruction is not annihilism, annihilationism. Um, remember when the, the demons came and said, are you here to destroy us? Is the time come to torment us forever and destroy us? And And... He doesn't annihilate them. They're not annihilated, but they're going to be punished through eternity. So that that so so people are going to say destruction can mean annihilation, and then you're in non-existence. We have to come back and say, wait a minute, no. And here's passages that show that. So these are three. Uh, the Luke four thirty-three and thirty-four passage are good is good. Matthew two thirteen. 2 Thessalonians 5, and there are a couple others. But that's what you want to have on your mind, too, when they talk about destruction and destroy. Um, the hard one, I guess, is Matthew 10, 28. And this is, if you want to turn there, this one's, there's a little lesson in this. In Matthew chapter 10, we are told this. This is one of my favorite passages, really. Hold on to this a lot. When he says, have no fear, uh, Matthew 10, beginning verse 26. So have no fear of them. Nothing covered will, that will not be uh, revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in dark, say in light, what you hear and whisper, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but, not, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who's able I'm sorry, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's a big passage. That's one of the annihilationists are really going to bring against you and say, see, there it is. He can destroy you in hell. You know, you'll be in hell and then you're going to be destroyed. And so that's like, you know. Um, now, remember, in the context, what Jesus is teaching is the pain and suffering in this world shouldn't keep you from preaching or teaching or being faithful because we live in our soul after death. And, and then the body and soul at, at the resurrection and final judgment and will be with the Lord. God will punish and destroy the wicked in hell. Now, if this was the only passage that was that spoke to anything that we've talked about tonight in, in this whole place, then this you can make a case um, for like being destroyed because you're in hell and then being Destroyed again. I would go back to being wrecked, being you know that eternal torment from God, just beaten down in that way. But um, in this way, there's there's a slight possibility that could be used to be totally destructed. Like you know, you're in hell and then you are destroyed, um, and they'll say out of existence. Uh, if it was the only passage, it may kind of make fit. But see, here's the thing. This is the lesson to learn tonight especially not only do we believe in sola scriptura like 
scripture alone, which tells us that the Bible is our highest authority. We have other authorities, but everything is subordinate to scripture. It's the final word on everything. Okay. We also believe in tota scriptura, all of scripture. And this is a big deal. This is where we talk about cherry picking passages. And we'll see a lot of that next week. And out of context, tota scriptura is that the teaching of a subject or a doctrine is taken in light of all the scripture, which is sufficient, which is inspired. But we look at the context of that passage within the within its scope, within that pericope, within the context of the book overall, within the context of scripture. And then that's how we come to draw conclusions in that way. So we, we, we come to that composite. So when you do that, with the teachings of hell. And this is why it says scripture um, interprets scripture. And this is what that means. This is what that means. We go back to what the Bible says and we take that composite. And sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's indicated very uh, in, a, in a very um, per, per, persuasive way. Other times it's not as, but you can draw good and necessary consequences from it. So that's what we do. We never just take one in isolation, you know, that kind of thing. Always within its context, always within a greater context of the book itself, greater the greatest context of Scripture itself. So when we think about hell, look how many passages we looked at last week and this week. That's what you have to do to get the composite. You can't just go to one passage and say, well, there it is. You know, this is this one. And this one's still not very clear. It's not, but you could maybe grant a little bit on, on that side. See what I'm saying? So don't be intimidated if they come up with a passage saying, let's think, what's the Bible teach about hell? And you put together what we had last week in conjunction with this week. It makes it very clear. It should be very clear to us uh, in that way. So um, the idea is it will suffer body and soul in hell. Evildoers will be punished without end. So that's it. And then there's one more, that word destruction. They also use the word eternal because that word eternal in Greek can mean age or, you know, eon. You've heard eon and eons of times. Well, there's still uh, finality to that or it's finite in some way. So it does and it can refer to age, but it clearly refers to eternal length of time. And the classic text on that, I mean, there are many, uh, Matthew 26 I think by logical contrast, you know, it's not just an age because the believers. Go back to Matthew 26 real quick. I, I do want to show you this. Even though we're here a little bit ago. Matthew 26. I'm sorry, 25, 46. Um, He'll answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, you do not do to the least of these you did not do it to me, then you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So think about this. When we go into eternal life, he talks about it right here. They're going to be raised. They're going to be in eternal life. Is there any indication in Scripture that eternal life will ever come to an end? No. New heavens, new earth. We will live forever in the presence of the Lord. So... That, that idea to be consistent is more than implied. It, it flows from. It just, it's there naturally. Well, if we're going to be eternal in heaven, right here, there needs to be an eternity in hell too. Well, where's the change? You'd have to have something to say, okay, you're going to be in eternal life, those raised to eternal life for all life, for all eternity, but those in hell for a period of time. Then I'd, then I'd say, okay, yes, I'd be an annihilationist tonight. But you can't do that. Do you understand? If it's eternal in heaven, it has to be eternal in hell. And then in Revelation 20, uh, we looked at that as well. And this is like really important too. Um, when he's talking about the destruction of Satan, what does it say? Um, does anybody in Revelation 20, verse 10, somebody have that? Because I'm... Far away from them. And the devil that deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were, and they were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. 
And that's very, very plain and clear. That's that, you know, um, what does the King James say on that? Did you say it's an everlasting, everlasting? But this makes it very plain day and night, forever and ever. It's just very, very clear. So that word is ion, like that, the, the word for time could be an age. But in the context and the way it's used, it's not used that way. There's no end in sight. So that's a very clear verse. And we are going to, those people are going to be thrown in the lake of fire as well, the unbelievers, as we read in the final judgment as well with him. So I think, I, I'm just saying, like part of this is to, to warn us as Christians and to have some fodder, you know, if you're in a conversation with somebody, whether you're witnessing to them, because this is a big objection, you know, like what kind of God could send people to hell, you know, this, this whole thing. And, you know, just, or, or if you're talking to others, it doesn't seem fair to be in hell, this kind of thing. Well, it is, and here's why. Well, does it really last forever? Is it, you know, or if you're talking to an actual annihilationist, you know, a, a well-versed person who does know that, because it is gaining in popularity, and you might be tempted to go down that road, but I'm telling you tonight, don't do that. <laughs> don't be tempted, because it's very seductive, and... They make plausible arguments, just like we're told in Scripture, these high-sounding, plausible arguments, but you have to stick to your guns in Scripture, which is sometimes pretty tough to do. So, any questions or comments to add? A quick question on the Book of Life. Yeah. Because it says, you know, they were judged by what was written in the books. You know, the dead were. Yeah. And then it says, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was Called, people who were called or yeah. elected, or yeah. Uh, how many of you believe that there's really a book, an actual book? <laughs> it's flipping up. That'd be a big book. Well, I was arguing with our dispensationalist friends, and that was one of the things. I said, "Look, that's a fig. You know, the Book of Life. It's not an actual book that that's bound. It has everybody's name in it that's saved. It's it is all those who've been called from before eternity." Before the foundation of the world, who are saved? So it's all those who who were called from eternity, who have been saved, who will be saved. People we don't even know yet that are going to be born, they're going to trust in Jesus Christ. Their names are written in the book of life, and that's just a way of saying that you're trusting in Christ, that you belong to Him, that you're one of the elect. If that does that make sense, everybody? Is anything different than that? But there's not. He's not gonna. <laughs> You know how long if you take that book? All the aeons, okay, Johnny. Uh, wait, you're not in here, Kevin. Sorry, you're gone. You know, I mean, it's not like that. It's just, it's a figure of speech. It's a beautiful picture, you know, to be written in the book, to be engraved in there. That's our name is in there. You know, his name is on our, our name is in his heart, engraved on his hand. Bible talks about that. It's just showing that's how sure our salvation is. But if your name's not found in that book of life, then you're thrown in the lake of fire for eternal death. So book of life and death. So I think that um, that's helpful. One of the tapes I listened to from Sproul, and this is, because everybody talks about fairness. That's not fair. This isn't fair. He said, nobody is treated unfairly. You either get God's mercy or his justice. But no one is treated that, unfairly. That was a life-changing thing for me as a, as a young Christian. Because I did struggle with this coming in, you know, at seminary hearing about the Reformed faith and everything. It's like, that doesn't seem fair. But it was that series from R.C. Sproul on the five points, on the doctrines of grace. And that's, I remember that distinctly. And so, you know, you, you either receive his, his grace, mercy, or his justice. But nobody's treated unfairly. And, and he used that illustration about... The stick figure people, right? Is that the stick figure people on the chalkboard? And he circled some people and he said, we're all sinners. But if God chooses to save these people, they receive mercy. These people get what they receive. And again, that's still kind of tough in some ways, but but it makes sense. You know, like when when a a governor pardons people, like, you know, why doesn't he pardon everybody then? It's his prerogative. It's his choice. It's his reason. You know, he has his reasons for doing that. And... Everybody, if those prisoners not pardoned, they can't say, oh, he didn't pardon me. You're still serving your time for your crime. It's the ones that receive that pardon that have that blessing. No, thank you. I don't deserve this. So that's that's the idea behind it. So very good. Um, so next week we will uh, finish up and we'll talk about uh, universalism. And now 
if you get you want to almost laugh at it because it just seems silly but if you have a skilled universalist they will bring out passage after passage after passage God so loved the world how can you say people are going to be in heaven he loves everybody in the world you know and um, he doesn't want anybody to perish he's you know he's exactly well yeah there's always good answers but that will just bombard you and you know we'll It doesn't. Because it's in English. And English is a poor language compared to Greek. Yeah, and you have to understand the cosmos, what that means, the context, what who he means by the world. Is it, is it every single person in the world? Is it the universe? Is it certain people that belong? Yeah, so, yeah, that's, and that's what you have to do. But the universalist doesn't care about that. They're just going to come at you and say, well, here it says it. You know, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He's waiting for everybody to come to faith. So we just need to be ready for that because, again, that's taking root. And more and more people, professing Christians, are believing that. God is so loving that, you know, again, this is putting his love above all his other attributes as if his love regulates his other attributes. His love is his attribute just like his justice is his attribute, just like his holiness is attribute. You know, you can't say, well, love is over these and it regulates the other ones. It supersedes in that way. No, he is love. He is justice. He is mercy. So that's what we have to keep in mind, too. Let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this time. And I just pray, Lord, that it's been a helpful time, that we have been edified, a little more equipped to uh, have an answer for the hope that lies within us to all those who ask. And this is a growing trend, even within Christian circles or progressive Christianity or in uh, different different branches of, of the faith. And we're faced with these challenges and um, these teachings, Lord, plausible sounding teachings in some ways, and yet they are not scripture. So we're warned in your word not to or to take heed of these and to be able to respond to them uh, in, a, in a truly biblical fashion, Lord God. So thank you for this time. I just pray that you would continue to build us up, strengthen us, see us safely to our homes. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.